Hello, and welcome to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. I'm Mario Sakura, and this is the place where my co-hosts, TJ Dahl and TJ Ingracia, and I discuss movies through the lens of the Enneagram model of personality. If you like the show, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe, and join the conversation on our social media pages. For now, grab some popcorn, sit back, and enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. I am Mario Sakura, and I'm here with my two co-hosts, TJ Daw and TJ Ingracia. Guys, how you doing today? Doing well. Not too bad. All right, great. So we're, we are going to continue our series on the Avengers movies, or the Marvel movies, I should say, because they're not all Avenger movies. But we are continuing to do pairs of movies. And today we are going to talk about Black Panther and the Avengers Infinity War. Uh, who wants to explain why we're pairing these two movies, guys? Well, I think we wanted to discuss Black Panther as a primary character. And uh, it's hard to talk about the Marvel Cinematic Universe without talking about Infinity War and Endgame, which really are they're kind of like part one and part two that go together. And um, Black Panther obviously is most prominent in Black Panther and the film that he's second most prominent in, which he isn't even that much, to be honest, is right. Infinity War. But there is a lot of Wakanda in Infinity War. Correct. Also, Black Panther was never a massive character in the Marvel Comics universe. Uh, his, he was usually a guest. He'd be doing a cameo in a Fantastic Four book or in the Avengers or things like that. And I think it was, you know, a few years into the Marvel Cinematic Universe before Marvel as a company really started admitting that our cast of characters is pretty white and pretty dominantly white guys. And that's not necessarily a good thing. And what do we want to do about that? And Black Panther was co-written and directed by a black director. You've got a black protagonist, antagonist, an African setting and just a really great, diverse cast, a lot of women, a lot of interesting roles. And the movie was a massive hit. So I think it it just showed that there is a public appetite for this and that it seems like that whole mythological world is tilting in a more diverse and even direction. It was the highest grossing non-Avengers film of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah, so we'll end up talking a lot more about Black Panther. I do um, a few points here. I mean, it is some much needed diversity, and it is to see you know Marvel in general moving that direction with stronger female characters, some uh, non-white characters, and so forth. Um, you know, other than the Hulk, who's a green character, doesn't really count, uh, you know, when it comes to the kind of uh, representational, you know, filmmaking that we're talking about. I also want to say that uh, something I read in preparing for this movie really made me think about, you know, yeah, we've come a long way or Marvel has come a long way as a society. Uh, we still got a long way to go. And it was reading that uh, a couple of years after making of this movie, the director, Ryan Coogler, was arrested trying to take some money out of the ATM in Atlanta uh, because they assumed for some reason that he was trying to steal money. And um, so he was detained by bank employees who never bothered to check his identification to see if he was the person who, um, you know, whose ATM card it was that was being used. So uh, it really, reading that after watching the movie the second time in preparation, 
uh, really made me aware of how far we have to go on this issue. But uh, every step in the right direction helps, I guess. So that little commentary aside, let's uh, move on and talk about the Black Panther. Uh, I, I really enjoyed this movie. I really enjoyed re-watching it. Ryan Coogler, I want to talk about uh, after we talk about the movie because I'm just hella impressed uh, with Ryan Coogler. Uh, but uh, let's see, TJ Daw, I think you're going to summarize Black Panther for us, correct? I am. So here we go. So this is a summary of Black Panther, full of spoilers like our summaries always are. So this movie, as we mentioned, came out in 2018, came out in the month of February, which is not the time that blockbusters are usually released. And it was a massive hit, possibly surprising everyone, particularly because, as we've said, movies with black leads aren't often promoted or even made. So we get the backstory of the country of Wakanda, which is a small, fictitious nation from Central Africa, which draws its energy and technology from the metal vibranium, which is the strongest and most useful metal in existence. And with this, they've developed the most advanced technology in the world and kept themselves hidden from every other nation. They're ruled by a king who's also the nation's protector figure, the Black Panther, who has increased strength and agility thanks to the effects of a mystical heart-shaped herb. The Black Panther wears a panther-themed black costume with a full face mask, and the present king in Black Panther is T'Challa, played by the late great Chadwick Boseman. Uh, the head of the king's guard is Okoye, played by Danai Gurira, and his head scientist and younger sister is Shuri, played by Letitia Wright. So T'Challa, Okoye, and Nakia, another character played by Lupita Nyong'o, who's one of Wakanda's secret agents and T'Challa's love interest, travel to South Africa in pursuit of arms dealer Ulysses Claw, played by Andy Serkis, who'd stolen a large cache of vibranium from Wakanda almost 30 years before. Their pursuit puts them in the path of CIA agent Everett Ross, played by Martin Freeman, who takes a bullet for Nakia. The only way to save him is to bring him back to Wakanda, where their advanced technology can remove that bullet and heal him. And by bringing him back, they reveal their existence to him. Claw is soon killed by Killmonger, who's a former American soldier played by Michael B. Jordan. Killmonger is the son of the previous king's brother, who had been living undercover in Oakland and had been killed for helping Claw steal the vibranium from Wakanda in the first place. Killmonger claims his right to challenge T'Challa for the throne, and he bests him in combat, throwing his inert body off a waterfall. He ascends to the throne, he becomes the new Black Panther, and he has plans to distribute Wakanda's technology and weaponry to their secret agents all over the world and ignite revolutions against all oppressors. T'Challa's body is brought to the mountain people, where he regains his health and abilities and leads a counterattack on Killmonger. There's a great deal of amazing fighting as the movie climaxes, and T'Challa wins striking a fatal blow against Killmonger, who chooses death over imprisonment. And in the movie's final moments, T'Challa goes to the UN and decides it's finally time to share Wakanda's knowledge and resources with the world. All right. Thanks, TJ, for that summary. Um, so I, I'm just going to give my thoughts on uh, Black Panther before we start talking about Enneagram theme, and then I'll invite both of you guys to share your thoughts on it as a movie. Uh, I found it tremendously entertaining, tremendously interesting, conceptually was interesting. The set action pieces were fantastic, right? The uh, the, the scene in uh, takes place in Busan, Korea uh, was fantastic. I, I just liked everything about this movie, right? I mean, uh, great acting. Um, Co-starred uh, one of my favorite young actors, Michael B. Jordan, who I'm sure will have a few things to say about. And uh, was nice to see Angela Bassett. It's always nice to see Forrest Whitaker show up in something. And Chadwick Boseman is just 
you know, a, a huge loss when he passed away. He was such a gifted actor. Uh, I, I really enjoyed this movie. What did you guys think of the movie in general? Yeah, they had a lot of great set pieces. I think the interaction between T'Challa and Killmonger, sort of their different styles, the way they approach how to deal with injustice, how to right the wrongs of the past. Uh, it's just very interesting to see. They both have good points to make. Uh, this is similar to sort of the theme of Captain America's Civil War that we discussed last episode. There's two sides who have very different views, but they both make good points. So how do you deal with that tension? Yeah, I thought it was an excellent movie. One of the things I really appreciated about it, it's a very good ensemble film. It's a big cast. Every single actor is excellent. Every single character has something important and interesting to do. Every personality pops. They're not just all you know, clones to flesh out the population. Uh, another thing I thought they did really well was integrate special effects. There's a lot of special effects in this movie, and it's all too easy, particularly in a movie of this genre, for it to get bogged down by that, for it to be there's just this eye candy that doesn't really mean anything. Whereas the spectacular nature of the visuals were always in service of the story rather than the other way around. Yeah, good point. It, it was a great example of world making for me, right? Uh, particularly with Wakanda, uh, you know, creating this world in a way that was consistent and believable. You know, even though obviously it wasn't believable in a lot of ways, but uh, it made sense. There was nothing that pulled me out that either by saying, oh, that's just stupid or that visual effect is distracting to me because it's because it's not quite working or it's over the top, that sort of thing. I agree with you. It was integrated really well for me. Excuse me. I agree with you about the quality of the acting. The two standouts for me were uh, Michael B. Jordan and Andy Serkis. Uh, I always think of Andy Serkis as the the motion actor who um, who other characters get laid over, uh, but I, I just thought every time he was on screen, uh, I was it was in for some fun. So I'm curious with you guys uh, reactions to the Andy Serkis. Uh, I'm sorry, yeah, that's the name, right? Andy Serkis um, and and his character of Claw. I read that a lot of times during the filmmaking, Andy Serkis and Martin Freeman were two of the only white people that were on the set. And because both of them had appeared in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, they were referred to collectively as the Tolkien white guys. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, I also liked seeing Martin Freeman in a role that wasn't some sort of befuddled, you know, uh, ineffectual sort of character, right? He's such, he's so good at that sort of, uh, befuddled, I guess is the word that keeps coming back to me, sort of character that to see him as a serious sort of person, but still a touch of comedy in there was, was really refreshing. It showed his talents as well. Yeah. And I thought Andy Serkis just chewed up the scenery like a guy who's playing the villain, knows he's a villain, loves being the villain, knows the fact that villains always get the best lines. They get the best moments. They're so memorable and he couldn't have been happier. Yeah. There, there were a couple of lines where uh, I think it was during the car chase where he, you know, says, oh, that was awesome. Right. And there, and, and there was the other the other one where he tells the guy to, to turn on some music. This isn't a funeral, you know, right. <laughs> In the middle of an guy. epic car chase. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, fleeing right. for their lives. Yeah. Uh, for me, that was kind of a good seven character. I, I thought the character of Claw, um, you know, again, just somebody who was just gleeful and having fun. And it also, for me, 
was nice to go against the stereotype of, you know, a seven who's a bad guy, right? And, uh, you know, uh, and kind of a, an aggressive uh, sort of character in a way that we usually don't think of with the Robin Williams type sevens. Uh, that's the stereotype. Uh, thoughts on that? Anybody disagree on uh, that assessment? I, I see that. I That makes sense. Would you say transmitting seven? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. I was picking up some eight-ish vibes, but I guess the transmitting would account for that. Yeah. I had the same thoughts. I think there's an argument for eight as well as an argument for seven. There's there's a lot yeah. of big lustful love of intensity. And then there's the part of them that's just having so much fun being yes. big and lustful and intense. Well, you know, this, uh, I don't want to jump ahead here, but it, you know, but you're opening a little window into what I want to talk about here with the Marvel movies and the type eight sort of archetype, right? Um, I don't think that Marvel really does eight well, right? And uh, we'll come back and talk to that next time. But it seems to me to be sort of a three, seven, one-ish universe uh, very often with a lot of the themes and the characters but again we'll we'll, we'll save that uh, i just want to give the listener a, a little um sneak peek at what's coming later the other thing i want to say i just want to again touch on ryan coogler i can't say how impressed i am um, with ryan coogler as a director as i was watching this movie again he has only directed three movies Fruitvale Station, which was a low-budget movie set in Oakland, and I'm embarrassed to say that I, I have not watched yet. Uh, but from there, he made Creed, uh, also with Michael B. Jordan, which I think is a fantastic movie. Um, it uh, breathed new life into the Rocky series, and um, um, it just as far as a skillfully made movie blows all the other Rocky movies out of the water, right? Uh, nothing will ever exceed the first Rocky in my heart, but Creed came pretty darn close. Uh, also uh, set in my hometown of Philadelphia, and in fact, a lot of it took place uh, uh, near where I lived uh, uh, in that movie. So anyway, enough of my meanderings down memory lane here. And then this is his third movie. And just imagine putting so much confidence into the hands of a young and relatively inexperienced filmmaker and then for him to come up with this as the outcome. It just, it just blows me away thinking about it. It feels like it has flashes of Francis Ford Coppola in The Godfather. You know, young, inexperienced, and turns out something that's, you know, has a legacy. Yes, yes. And in this case, Ryan Coogler had never made a movie with special effects before or with stunts in this way. I mean, there's violence in, in Creed in the ring, but that's different than chase right. sequences. Right. That's different than right. battle scenes. That's a lot to keep track mm -hmm. of. That's a lot to make work, you know, when you're doing a lot of work with a green screen. And he did. He did brilliantly. Yeah. I think the kid's going to go far. I think we're going to see a <laughs> lot of good movies from him. Yeah. If, if you're listening, Mr. Coogler, it's a big thumbs up for you, pal. All right. All right. So, um, okay. So let's get to uh, the Enneagram and our assessment of this. Um, so I'm, I'm just going to put my view out there. This struck me as a three-themed movie. Okay, and what I mean by that is type three was then issues related to Enneagram type three are um, overlaying this whole film, right? Plot wise, um, not so sure I could make that argument regarding specific characters that well. 
All right. I don't think the characters were that clearly drawn from an Enneagram perspective, but the overall theme for me was very three-ish. Before I explain um, my rationale for that, any comments or reactions? I'm interested to hear your explanation for that. That's not a thought that I had, but I'm okay. I'm open. Okay. And same here. I saw a lot of nine themes in this. So Mm -hmm. very interested to hear your take. Yeah. So I think that um, the character of T'Challa is kind of a nine-ish character. Okay. And for me, this movie was all about the um, tension between points three and point nine. But the theme was all about excellence. Okay. The theme was all about being outstanding and value and aspiration. Uh, the town of, I'm sorry, the town, the, uh, the kingdom of Wakanda is all about excellence, right? Now, there is this theme throughout that is all about who are you? Okay. And in fact, I think that was the last line of the movie when the kid looks at T'Challa at the end when they're back in Oakland and says to him, who are you? I think this was a um, movie about something that a lot of threes go through of aspiring to something, but feeling an insecurity about it deep down inside and never really feeling like, you know, I am this person that I'm pretending to be. Okay. Now, I am curious to hear what you guys have to say, you know, otherwise and about the nine angle, because I think an argument could be made the same way, right? Uh, Because nines are often about this idea of becoming something, but this holding back, okay, and not wanting to become this thing that they could. Whereas for threes, what's often going on is this um, competence and capability and excellence on the surface but this feeling of being a fraud underneath. And I think that's the big issue that T'Challa was, uh, was uh, wrestling with. Okay? Um, I also think that Wakanda itself was kind of an idealized society, right? I mean, it was kind of the perfect place. It was the, the best in technology, the best in culture, the best in its ethical processes and so forth, right? So, or its, its ethical mores. Um, so again, that felt very three-ish to me. Not perfectly, but th- that's kind of what I was taking away from it. So go ahead. Let me, let me hear your thoughts, guys. Yeah, some nine-ishness that I saw in Wakanda in general is, you know, there's all the things you mentioned, and then there's also a beautiful blend of modern technology and traditional way of life. You know, there's still people tending livestock in the fields. There's still ample swaths of the country that are just natural forest and trees and rivers. So there's, there's a respect and a harmony with the natural world, which doesn't negate high technology and industry. It's a way to live sustainably. So it's this harmonious combination of things that again is very idealistic, which, you know, as far as I know, there's never been an example of in human history, but if we could get there, wouldn't that not be something? So I can see both three and nine in that. Big nine-ish theme that I saw in the movie altogether is the theme of keeping your brilliance hidden. Many nines have all the talent in the world and it stays within their own mind or stays within the confines of their own home or maybe a few people who knows them, who know them. So there's often this reticence to shine and this reticence to get involved. Uh, nines are often more inclined to keep themselves small. I don't want to bother anyone. Let's just keep things going the way they are. 
So that was a pretty major theme in the movie for me is there's this sense, you know, T'Challa even dialogues with his father who's in the afterlife that this is what we've done in Wakanda. We've always kept ourselves out of the world, even though we have the technology to make a significant impact. But we just choose not to because we don't want to bring attention to ourselves. We don't want to have a threat to our traditional way of life. And the big arc for T'Challa as a character, and then by extension for Wakanda, uh, altogether, is saying it's time to actually step up and step in. It's time to let everyone know that we have things to offer. And doing that is an arrogance and it isn't a bad thing to do. Self-assertion can be a good thing. You genuinely have gifts to offer the world and the world is better when you offer them. So it's time to step in. And then there's a post-credit scene when he addresses the United Nation and his speech, which I can just quote from briefly here, sounds very healthy nine or, you know, and as you mentioned this, I can also see it as three integrating a lot of healthy nine. He says, for the first time in our history, we will be sharing our knowledge and resources with the outside world. We will no longer watch from the shadows. We will work to be an example of how we as brothers and sisters on this earth should treat each other. Now more than ever, the illusions of division threaten our very existence. We all know the truth. More connects us than separates us. But in times of crisis, the wise build bridges, while the foolish build barriers. We must find a way to look after one another as if we were one single tribe. That sense of unity and inclusion and stepping in to make it work for everyone strikes me as very healthy nine. I concur. That's all. <laughs> I hadn't really um, thought about any of it in that context, but I think all those things make sense. I felt, and of course, I'm, you know, my bias is going to come through here. I felt a lot of one-ish vibes from T'Challa, but I think that sort of in that light, in that context, seeing those same things through a nine-ish lens does make sense. There's a hesitation. There's a not be showy. We're going to take care of our own. Yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> I still think there's a lot of one-ish stuff in him as well, but I, I agree with all that. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, all valid, valid uh, observations and uh, for me the thing that separates is that um, it, it seemed to me that one of the reasons that they were staying hidden was not so much because they didn't think that they were worthy of being noticed which is typically the issue around the nine uh, it was because you know what you people can't handle what we're doing, right? I mean, we're just we're just too far ahead of you here, right? And um, you know, there was that scene where um, the, the two guys were talking, and um, you know, one of them said to T'Challa, um, "If we open the borders, the, the you know, and let people in, they'll bring their problems with them, right?" So, uh, you know, this this society, you know, when I think of a nine-ish sort of society, I think of something like Tahiti, right, or at least the Gauguin era. Tahiti of people just chilling out, you know, and, you know, relaxing. Whereas this was all about the best technology, right? The most advanced, um, you know, equipment, even when it's weapons and the most advanced healing and medicine and so forth. So these were people who were bringing things into the world, you know, I mean, these were people who were really achieving and accomplishing. Okay. So, you know, and again, this is not a right, wrong sort of uh, conversation here. It's just interesting to look at these themes and how all the Enneagram themes, but particularly those that are connected on the lines are in some tension with each other. 
right? We're going to see this pull between 0.3 and 0.9, and even 0.6 and 0.3, right? We call the, uh, uh, when we talk, talk about the three's tendency to neglect striving to feel secure, it leads to this inner anxiety, right? It leads to this feeling of being an imposter that I talked about, which again, I thought was something that we see in, um, in T'Challa. Uh, th there were a couple of interesting comments it, uh, th that had to do with, um, one was about truth. There was a lot about truth and honesty and deception in this movie that came through, right? And it wasn't the kind of you know, again, I think threes get a bad rap in the Enneagram literature. They're portrayed as, you know, snake oil salespeople or something. And that's just not my experience, having worked with a lot of threes over the years. But um, there is this issue around perception that can be a problem for them, right? And so there's this idea of putting up this false front of what Wakanda was. There was also a, a great line where... Uh, T'Challa's father says to him, uh, he was the truth I chose to omit. Again, it was about secrets. It was about stories. It was about crafting perceptions that this whole thing sort of hung on. And this is what led to the, um, the fury and outrage of the Killmonger. Uh, an unfortunate name, I think. Uh, it was interesting because Michael B. Jordan's Killmonger was not a particularly likable character. And I found it difficult to feel sympathy for him for most of the movie. And it was interesting how T'Challa sort of found that sympathy for him at the end and um, took him to watch a sunset before he died. And it did speak to what TJ mentioned earlier about these, uh, about this moral complexity in a sense of life. Let's talk about Killmonger. Thoughts on him? Again, fabulous character. As I was watching, I thought there's a strong argument for him as a three and a strong argument for him as an eight. And the three stuff that really popped for me was he's incredibly focused and goal-oriented, like to a ridiculous degree. And he even says at one line, you know, at one point when he's confronting T'Challa really for the first time, he says, I trained, I lied, I killed just to get here. I killed in America, Afghanistan, Iraq. I took life from my own brothers and sisters right here on this continent. And all this death, just so I could kill you. I've lived my entire life waiting for this moment. So he's fashioned himself into a weapon for this, which is very three-ish. As well as he's scarred himself for every kill in his long career. And his entire upper body is nothing but these small scars. So it looks like he's killed, you know, a hundred or several hundred people. So that struck me as kind of a three-ish thing, as a desire for recognition for his accomplishments, like accumulating a score, a visible score. And then the eight stuff, you know, he's very motivated by vengeance. And he's got a lack of smoothness. You know, he never loses his inner city Oakland accent and speech mannerisms, even when he's king. He's got this very much take me as I am kind of presentation, which struck me as very eight. And then he orders the heart-shaped herbs to all be burned because he wants to prevent any possibility of there being a challenge to him on the throne. Uh, and he won't hear of any debate about this. He says, when I tell you to do something, I mean that shit, burn it all. So if I had to put my money on one or the other, I'd say eight, but I still see a lot of three stuff in him too. Yeah, I agree. I can see both of those, but my vote would be for eight as well. Uh, the scene when he walks into the throne room to challenge T'Challa, uh, the first thing they say to him is, what do you want? And he says, I want the throne. Right. He's very trans. He wants the power. 
He he wants the control. Once he finally gets the throne and they're sort of deciding what they're going to do, he wants to use the Wakandan weapons to, you know, send out to black people all over the world to throw off their oppressors. He says the world's going to start over and this time we're on top. And what, you know, I think he, he says something like Wakanda's reign will never end. So it's eight-ish right on the nose for my money. But Mara, you're the resident eight, so you tell us what you think. So, um, well, I, I think you guys make a, a, a good argument. Uh, I'm sort of in the same place in that not a hugely clear three, not a hugely clear eight, right? There could be arguments for either. Um, I think a lot of what, you know, one of the things I found my th myself thinking as I was watching this movie again was, are there cultural overlays here at play, right? And by that, I mean, um, young black man raised by, in the inner city clearly would have had a tough life considering that he was abandoned at a young age, ended up being, you know, a, a special forces assassin in the military. So clearly, whatever life experiences he had sort of hardened him Right. And um, so it could have been a three who went through that sort of hardening experience could have also been just one of these cases where it's not a clearly drawn character. Right. So, uh, you know, I, I don't think that uh, we have to worry too much about explaining it away. I think there was a lot of three stuff, a lot of eight stuff um, there as well. And I found that also with Creed, the character in, when he played Creed. I, you know, I think in, when we did the podcast on those movies, uh, when I did it with Maria Jose and Tamara, I think I made the argument that it was a three-ish character. And I still think it is. Something about Michael B. Jordan, though, brings some eight to his characters as well. So I'd be curious what he is in real life. I, I don't know. I don't, I haven't seen enough about him. I do know I'm a huge fan of him. I mean, uh, we were talking before the podcast, he was Wallace in The Wire. Uh, I think he only made it to the first season before he was killed. Great, great character. As, as a kid, he was probably 12 or 13 or 14 when he, well, maybe 14 or 15 when he made that series. And also really, really good in uh, the TV series Friday Night Lights. He came in uh, late in the series as a, one of the main characters. Really good there. Big fan of his. But a great character. A really tender moment at the end of Black Panther between the two of them. And so it was an interesting contrast. And um, one of the things we discussed briefly prior to starting our uh, recording today was the... Um, the I guess the the themes, the different uh, approaches that were personified by T'Challa and Killmonger, and um, how that sort of reflects back to different approaches on the civil rights movement and uh, approaches to um, social justice issues. Right, one is the more uh, nine-ish sort of path, and one is the more eight-ish sort of path and that was kind of represented by these two characters as well it was interesting for me to read who some of the influences were that both of these actors read to get into the mindset of these characters um, chadwick boseman read uh, he read a lot about shaka zulu the um, african warrior king uh, patrice lumumba uh, Nelson Mandela, and listened to a lot of music by Fela Kuti, who my two young uh, co-hosts are not familiar with, and probably I would guess 95% of our listeners, but Fela Kuti 
essentially invented Afrobeat music in the 70s and ended up uh, being very vocal against the tyrannical Nigerian um, government and paid a big price for it. But if you ever get the chance, I would, well, I would take the chance to go onto Spotify or wherever and listen to some Fela Kuti, great, great stuff. His grandson just won a Grammy last year for, I think it was best international record. Now contrast that with who Michael B. Jordan read up on was uh, Malcolm X, Marcus Garvey, Huey P. Newton of the Black Panther Party, Tupac Shakur, and also he said that Heath Ledger's version of the Joker was a big influence. I almost, well, I, I, I don't almost, I do regret lumping the Joker into those other, uh, into that list of people, right? Because it sort of diminishes them by sure. I mean, the Joker was kind of a psychopath. Malcolm X and Huey P. Newton and those folks were not. So again, interesting difference in approach there. The one big scene for me for Killmonger that I thought was really interesting considering him as an eight was when he goes back to the ancestral plane after he takes the, I forget the, you know, he, the, uh, the heart shaped herb and he's going to get the powers and for him, the ancestral plane is the apartment in Oakland where his father was killed. And he walks into the apartment as himself, but then for a little bit, he actually reverts to his childlike form. And it felt to me like a pretty good picture of what you read about in a lot of the Enneagram literature is this idea that inside of the eight is this small, fragile child that they're protecting. They were harmed as a child. There was something that they were wounded by, and so they put up this hardened facade to protect it. And in that state, he reverted back to it, connecting with his father. And then at the very end, right before he dies, T'Challa takes him up to the mountain to see the sunset over Wakanda, and he mentions how his father told him that the sunsets in Wakanda were the most beautiful. So there's sort of this childlike connection to this wound that he had when he was young. I'll, I'll comment on that. So there were a couple of interesting things about that. Um, let's see. He made the comment as they were watching the sunset, and he said that his father told him that. Imagine, he said something to the effect of, imagine carrying around this fantasy all these years and almost kind of dismissing how stupid it was to have that sort of fantasy in one's mind. What was also interesting when you think about that reversion to the child and the father said to him, what, you don't have any tears for me? And the child said, no, I don't. But then when it cut to the older Killmonger, he did have tears, right? And again, there were tears at the end as well. Um, so an interesting dynamic. And so, again, I'll, I'll, I'll use my, <laughs> my, my right to voice opinions about eights uh, here. And what I always try to be careful about, and uh, when it comes to this topic in the literature, most of the Enneagram literature is set up so that Enneagram types are a reaction to something, to some fear, to some vulnerability, etc. I don't know that we can really say that, quite frankly, right? So for me, it's kind of a chicken and the egg issue. You know, a lot of what we know about biology is um, around predispositions, okay, and interpretation of our environment through a lens that we have, okay? So for me, it's not so much that the eight, 
you know, is, you know, the, the bluster and bravado is some reaction to a childhood wound. It is, this is the way they come into the world. And then they're highly sensitive to anything that feels like a threat to this need to feel strong. Right. I don't feel, for example, like ones are striving to feel perfect because, you know, in their childhood, they were made to feel imperfect or something. You know? So uh, so that so that's what I bring to this. Right. So I always try to be careful about making too much of a claim about causal mechanisms and so forth. OK, I swear it's one of the places where I differ from some of the things that we read. Yeah, everybody has a childhood wound in once in some form or fashion. So you're exactly. type, you know, yeah, chicken and the egg. Your type maybe largely dictates what you do with that wound. Uh, and and that's my way of thinking about it, right? Because I I can't tell you how many times I've had people come to me and say things like, "Well, you know, of course I'm a six. My you know my father was a violent alcoholic, and I was terrified all the time, and so I learned to be vigilant and blah blah blah." And then they walk out, and the next person comes in and says, "Well, of course I'm an eight. My father was a violent violent alcoholic and I had to be tough and, you know, and so, uh, you know, we can come up with whatever just so story we want, but, uh, you know, we need to be careful about them. And I do think that the point that you made, TJ and Gracia, is that eights are very sensitive. That's not the part that they necessarily lead with. That's not the part that people necessarily think of when they think of the eights that they've read in the, in the literature or the way an eight is generally portrayed in pop culture or even the eights that they might know, whether it's a friend or their spouse or their child or in because eights are generally pretty careful to not wear that on their sleeve. If you're close to an eight, often they will let you know. And you can see that there is that tender, sensitive person inside. There's a soft underbelly underneath the armor. Yeah. And I thought that moment in the movie, I hadn't thought of that, but definitely shows that. That, you know, beneath the scarring, beneath the bluster and the assertion is a wounded child. Yeah. And, you know, certainly vengeance was a theme here too, right? Revenge and so forth for, for Killmonger. Um, so good. Okay. Um, any other thoughts about Black Panther before we move on? Just wanted to go through my list of a few of the things that got me thinking that T'Challa's a nine. Uh, he's pretty easygoing. Uh, he, um, people make wisecracks to him all the time and he doesn't feel and the need to, it. yeah, he just takes it with a smile. Or even if he has some kind of refutation, it's always quite good-humored. He's really unpretentious. So there's a number of scenes where he's walking through the marketplace, and he is the king of the nation. And no one even seems to notice that he's there. And he doesn't mind that nobody notices that he's there. He just walks through like he's anybody else. And he's without ill will. So in a scene early in the movie, he gets challenged for leadership by M'Baku, who, uh, who's the leader of the, the mountain people, the Jubari, played by Winston Duke, just a wonderful character. I thought an excellent transmitting eight. And th it's, it's a challenge that's, that ends by either yield or death. And when T'Challa has him in a dominant position, which wasn't easy, you know, it was a pretty close fight, but he's got him and he refuses, M'Baku refuses to yield. He says to him, you have fought with honor. Now yield. Your people need you. He doesn't want to kill him. He doesn't want to humiliate him. He wants him to be alive. And that ends up being something that saves his own life later because it's the Jabari people that take him in and help revive him. And then in the final moment, which we talked about, where Killmonger references that his father had told him that the sunsets in Wakanda are more beautiful than anywhere, T'Challa deliberately takes him up on an elevator to watch that sunset. He doesn't hate him for everything that he's done, for all the damage that he's done to himself and to Wakanda. He still knows that this man deserves compassion just like anyone does. 
and I can give him this gift and even offers to attempt to save his life. It's Killmonger's choice to kill himself and end his life. But T'Challa doesn't say, I've beat you and you are down and I'm killing you forever. That's just not his way. He's very easygoing. I'll just add one final uh, point to Killmonger as an eight. The reason he doesn't want to be saved is because he knows that he'll be put in a prison, right? Uh, confined. And he said, um, you know, that, that that's worse than death. So he doesn't want that to happen. A couple other vivid character types, I thought. Okoye was such a good one. And she had a lot of beautiful one moments. She's very stern and judgmental and critical and not afraid to express it about anyone or anything. We see a bunch more moments like this in Avengers Infinity War as well. Uh, for example, when Wanda Maximoff finally shows up in the big battle with the aliens and does some spectacular thing where she gets rid of a bunch of <laughs> alien apparatuses and a bunch of, throws them on an alien and Okoye's response immediately is, you know, why was she not here the whole time? Right. <laughs> <laughs> not hooray to have this powerful ally with us. I mean, right. I'm sure she had right. that thought, but then the second thought, the one that's actually expressed is, yeah. you didn't do this right. You should have been here sooner. Yeah. <laughs> Uh-huh. And at, again, at the climax of Infinity War, M'Baku says to her, this will be the end of Wakanda. And she says, then it will be the noblest ending in history. And I think that's a right. beautiful one quality as well, as ones have this innate sense of dignity and nobility. We love to go down with the ship. If I need to die in the service of what's right, then that is the best way to die there is. Right. And then Shuri, the younger sister, I thought was such a good five. For one thing, she's a brilliant scientist and... They never say this blatantly, but the implication is because Wakanda is so technologically advanced, so far beyond any other country on earth in history, therefore she is the most brilliant scientist on earth in the history of earth. And she's also openly and playfully disdainful of others not being as smart as she is. She'll, she'll say things that you know, when someone will not know something, to her it's obvious and she'll say that. She'll literally say, so these trains... That's magnetic levitation, right? Well, obviously. Or, you know, when they bring in vision in Infinity War. Well, why didn't you just reprogram the, the synapses to work collectively? And Banner says, because we didn't think of it. Whereas to her, it's obvious. And it's astonishing that this wouldn't be obvious. And then she says, I'm sure you did your best. <laughs> <laughs> Very condescendingly. Yeah, that condescension that fives can have of like, how does anyone operate when they're as ignorant as they are? So that's interesting. I didn't think of her as a five. I, I, I hear what you're saying, and I think they're valid points. Uh, she seemed a bit more exuberant and playful and, you know, um, mischievous, you know, in, 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 in an almost seven-ish sort of way for me. But, but I hear what you're saying. Those are, those are interesting points. I like that. And the fact that she's brilliant doesn't necessarily make her a five. Right. Anyone of any type can be world-level brilliant. But she really does plunge in, and her home is in the science lab. For sure. All right. So uh, Black Panther, I just want to, uh, you know, final thought here. Uh, again, I want to be clear. I'm not suggesting that the character of T'Challa was a three. Uh, I, I agree he was a nine, sort of, uh, you know, uh, moving to three in a very healthy way or learning to do that, learning to uh, find out who he is. For me, when I bring in this idea of a three-ish sort of movie, it was more about the technology and advancement of Wakanda and this aspiration um, etc. So, but again, um, I think we had some good depictions of the nine versus the eight energy in certain ways and some three sort of things as well. So, uh, good stuff. If you want to find out more about my work with the Enneagram and organizations of all kinds or our certification programs, visit me at mariosecura.com or follow me on social media. 
Hi, I'm TJ Daw, and I do one-on-one consulting on creative projects of all kinds, as well as Enneagram coaching. I teach an online course on how to create your own one-person show, and I speak at events and perform shows of my own. For more information, go to my website, www.tjdawe.ca. This is TJ Ingracia. To check out my YouTube series, Typecast, which explores the Enneagram through film and television, go to youtube.com slash typecast. And if you're interested in my professional video production services, check out tjingracia.com. So we're going to move on now and talk about the Avengers Infinity War, which is the, uh, I guess, the so far the penultimate of the um, Avengers movies. Who's going to do, who's going to take on the Herculean task of giving a summary of this movie? Yeah. Last episode, I gave the caveat that people should be prepared for a long explanation for Civil War. Well, this one's longer <laughs> and yeah. more complex. People might want to pause here, run to the bathroom, get a snack. You know, yeah, go, right. go ahead. You may as well just watch the movie. It might be faster <laughs> than the explanation that I can give for it. <laughs> go ahead, TJ. <laughs> okay. So before I give the overview of Infinity War, first I need to establish one thing. So the name Infinity War is a reference to the Infinity Stones, which is sort of what these last two movies, Infinity War and Endgame, are all about. So I'm just going to kind of give a brief overview. So in the Big Bang, and this is in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, in the Big Bang, there were these elemental crystals that were created, and each one represents uh, some kind of a... Uh, the, the crystal controls an essential aspect of existence is the way to describe it. So the six stones are space, reality, power, soul, mind, and time. So these six stones become, you know, the, sort of the, the whole film is, revolves around those. So we need that overview starting off. Just, just so I'm clear, the, the stones are fictional, right? They, 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 they weren't really a byproduct of the Big Bang that we're aware of. Okay. Correct. As far as I know... There is no power stone for you to acquire. Oh, right okay. Shoot. Darn. All right. okay. I was thinking, I wonder if there's some Enneagram connection to each stone. That might be a stretch, though. Yeah, I think so. Okay. So the film opens with Thanos attacking a spaceship carrying the survivors of the destruction of Asgard, which is Thor and Loki's home world. And we're going to discuss that uh, next episode when we talk about Thor Ragnarok. So Thanos explains his plan to destroy half of all life in the universe. He thinks that the universe is overcrowded, people are going hungry, so he's going to free up resources for the other half by eliminating half. Aboard the ship, he takes the Space Stone uh, from the Tesseract, which we've seen in previous films. He beats the crap out of the Hulk, he kills Loki, he destroys the ship, and disappears. But not before Thor's best friend Heimdall uses the Bifrost to transport the defeated Hulk back to Earth. Now, you're just making up words here, aren't you? Right, yeah. Just... <laughs> <laughs> so many made-up okay. words. All right, go ahead. And also, I should say that as I'm going through this, there's going to be lots of jump cuts. One moment, we're on a ship in interstellar space. The next moment, we're on Earth. So mm-hmm. just kind of prepare yourself for that. Okay, so the Hulk has been transported back to Earth. He crash lands now as Bruce Banner, in the Sanctum Sanctorum of Doctor Strange in New York City. And together, Doctor Strange and Banner find Tony Stark, and they warn him about Thanos' imminent arrival. So just then, some of Thanos' henchmen arrive to steal the Time Stone from Doctor Strange, but they're unable to do so because Strange has put a spell over the stone. So instead of taking the stone, they basically knock Doctor Strange out. They just take him aboard their ship, Uh, but not before Tony Stark and Peter Parker, a.k.a. Spider-Man, sneak aboard the ship before it 
travels off into interstellar space. All right, so now jump cut back to interstellar space, the Guardians of the Galaxy, which we have not talked about yet. No. This is sort of a, not exactly a spinoff. They're, they're almost like their own little self-contained thing in the Marvel Cinematic Universe up to this point. They're like the, Deadpool to the X-Men in a way, right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So this is the first film where they've become integrated. So the Guardians of the Galaxy are responding to the distress signal from the Asgardian ship, which they find pieces just floating in space. They also find Thor floating in space, very much alive. Thor sort of teens up with the Guardians. They split up. Thor travels to Nita Valir with Rocket the Raccoon and Groot the Talking Tree to retrieve a new weapon. His hammer was destroyed in the events of Thor Ragnarok, so he needs a new weapon. Uh, simultaneously, the rest of the Guardians travel to Nowhere, spelled with a K, and attempt to stop Thanos from taking the Reality Stone. Of course, they fail. Thanos gets the Reality Stone. Actually, he gets it before they even arrive, but they don't figure that out till they get there. Thanos kidnaps his adopted daughter Gamora in the process of this, and Gamora eventually reveals to him the location of the Soul Stone, which she has discovered previously but has hidden from him because she knows about his plan to wipe out half of all life in the universe. Okay, so Thanos travels with Gamora to the planet Vormir, which is where the Soul Stone is, where they discover um, that you have to trade a soul for a soul, so Thanos sacrifices Gamora's life in the process of getting the stone. Cut back to Earth. Vision and Wanda Maximoff are now a couple, and they're hiding out together in Scotland. They're ambushed by two more of Thanos' henchmen and are saved just in the nick of time by Steve Rogers, Natasha Romanoff, and Sam Wilson, who rescue them and bring them back to the Avengers compound. Back at the compound, Vision, who you'll remember from last episode, has the Mind Stone embedded into his forehead. He suggests that the best way to keep it safe from Thanos is for Wanda to use her powers to destroy the stone, which will also kill him in the process. But as he puts it, Trading one life for half the life in the universe is that's a trade that they should be willing to make. But Wanda's not willing to do it. She, you know, that's too high of a price for her to pay. She refuses. So instead, they all travel together back to Wakanda because, as we've just established, Wakanda has the technology to potentially remove the stone from vision and keep him alive at the same time. Tony Stark and Peter Parker are on this interstellar ship trying to rescue Doctor Strange, which they do. And the three of them fly to Thanos' home world of Titan, where they meet up with the rest of the Guardians of the Galaxy, Peter Quill, Drax, and Mantis. And they all form a plan to ambush Thanos when he gets there to get the stones back from him. But before Thanos arrives, Doctor Strange uses the Time Stone to view millions of possible future events. And he sees that there is only one where the Avengers successfully defeat Thanos. Thanos arrives, and the group almost overpowers him. But when Peter Quill learns that Thanos has killed Gamora in the process of acquiring the Soul Stone, Gamora is his sort of love interest girlfriend, he becomes enraged, uh, starts attacking Thanos, which inadvertently allows Thanos to then overpower the rest of the group and defeat them. Thanos almost kills Tony Stark, but in the process, uh, just before he kills Tony Stark, Doctor Strange willingly gives him the Time Stone in exchange for Tony's life. And this is a big moment because earlier in the film, Doctor Strange was very explicit. If it's you or the Time Stone, I won't hesitate to let you die. So obviously he's given it up for some big reason. We don't know yet uh, what that reason is. Cut back to Wakanda. The Avengers, along with Bucky Barnes, Black Panther, and the Wakandan forces are battling Thanos' army. And T'Challa's sister, Suri, who we just mentioned, 
uh, is unable to remove the Mind Stone from Vision in time before the bad guys get to them. Vision again, uh, you know, Thanos is on his way. He begs Wanda to destroy the stone, which she reluctantly does. But Thanos uses his newly acquired Time Stone to turn back time, resurrect Vision, pulls the Time Stone out of Vision's forehead, killing him, taking the stone. Now he has all six stones. As soon as he gets it, Thor severely wounds Thanos with his newly acquired, uh, newly minted axe, but he's unable to stop him from snapping his fingers and teleporting away. So Thanos successfully completes his mission. Half of all life in the universe begins to disintegrate, including many of the main characters, Spider-Man, Black Panther, Bucky, Wanda, Sam Wilson, Peter Quill, many, many other characters. And the film ends with Thanos doing exactly what he said he would do if he accomplished his mission, which is watching a sunrise over a grateful universe. Very good. Yeah, so it was about 12 movies in one here uh, with this movie. Now, I want to say I I liked this movie. I remember seeing it in the theater and liking it. You know, as we've talked about before, I, I, you know, I think you guys too have a tendency to watch these movies twice in preparation for um, this. And I enjoyed watching it both times and found something interesting and, you know, a little bit deeper each time. But it was a complicated movie. Yeah, so tough to jump right into this because I even had to sit there and ask myself, okay, so why does Thor only have one eye and, um, you know, what happened to his hammer, all that sort of thing. I had forgotten the, the lead up to that. The other thing I want to say is not only were there so many themes, but it felt stylistically like there were multiple movies going on here. When we, when we talked about Civil War last time, I talked about how I, I liked the Russo brothers um, a depiction of this, the way they filmed it, it felt more like a James Bond, Jason Bourne kind of movie than a special effects, uh, a big special effects movie. This was a big old special effects movie here, right? And uh, there were lots of different locations and each one of them felt really, really different. So that sense of realism wasn't quite there um, like it was before, but it, it didn't bother me necessarily. Uh, T.J. Daw, what other uh, tidbits about... Uh, about Infinity War do we need to know? One of the things that really popped for me, it wasn't news, it was just really nice to see it and experience it again, was just how much humor there is along with the seriousness. Because the stakes literally could not be higher. Half the life of the universe is at stake. So it would be extremely easy to write this story full of grim seriousness, which it did have at some points, and yet it had all the room in the world for effervescent silliness, usually in the scenes involving Guardians of the Galaxy. And sometimes yes. those things happen at the same moment. So there's a scene where Gamora has made Peter Quill, Star-Lord, promise to kill her if Thanos gets the upper hand so that he doesn't find out uh, what she knows about where the Soul Stone is. And in the confrontation, pointing a gun, he says, let her go, Grimace. And uh, Thanos says, ah, the boyfriend. He says, I like to think of myself more of a Titan killing long-term booty call. And I'm going to blow that nutsack chin right off your face. And Chris Pratt is brilliantly funny. And I think he's a seven in real life. I think the character is yeah. also a seven. He's got a lot of that just seven fun energy. And that yet love of 70s music is a seven sort of thing. You know, that light, fun. Totally. Yeah, Upbeat music that everybody can groove yeah. to that you can't help but be caught along by the infectious groove of. And he right. plays that scene with utmost seriousness. And it's full of jokes and pop culture references. And the fact that they can get those two things to coexist 
is they have squared the circle. Like, well done, Russo Brothers. That is very hard to do. I agree with you about the humor, especially when the, you know, I, for me, my attention perked up whenever the Guardians of the Galaxy crew were in it, especially Drax, right? The, uh, the, the character played by Dave Bautista, I just think is hilarious when they were talking about the unconscious Thor and how, you know, how much of a man he was. And, 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 and you're and, a dude. This is a man, yeah. a and, handsome, and muscular Drax, man. And Drax says, it's like a, pirate had a child with an angel <laughs> and later they refer to him as the pirate angel you know sort of thing so <laughs> yeah so wonderful wonderful stuff uh, with the with the guardians of the galaxy and when <laughs> when uh, when star lord is uh, uh confessing his they're, they're having that tender moment star lord and gamora and they realize that drax has been standing there for about an hour and he thinks that he's invisible and uh, it's just hilarious i, I love every moment that that guy's in the thing about drax is i saw somebody share something online about how their artistic child fell in love with drax and their take was that Drax is on the autism spectrum and proves that people with autism can be superheroes. Oh, and one of the really? things about Drax ah. is he does not get figures of speech. He takes everything literally. Right, right, right. And is very impervious to social graces. Interesting. Which doesn't yeah. mean he doesn't kick ass. Right, right. He's incredible. And, and they kick names and take ass. Yeah. In fact, is, is out. <laughs> <laughs> but there's never any ambiguity in what he says. On the one hand, I think that's an eight thing. I see him very yeah. much as an eight character. Also, yeah. very much an autism thing. For sure. I, I see Drax as kind of an eightish character, but you're making an interesting point about the, that. And again, we uh, people always tend to assume that, um, you know, it's fives who are kind of the equivalent to people on the spectrum. Uh, there's no real evidence that that's the case or, you know, anything. So um, I personally know people on the spectrum of a variety of types. Yeah. I would say that there's yeah. nine ways to be on the spectrum. Yeah, I would agree. So one of the other things I noticed, uh, you know, again, I mentioned about how this felt like multiple movies in, in one, not just plot wise, but stylistically, the opening almost gives you the feel that you're in for a kind of Sam Raimi, evil dead, you know, um, you know, dark kind of movie, right? Because it's about suffering and torture and much darker than, you know, most of what we encounter in the uh, Marvel movies. Um, you know, it takes a turn from that. It doesn't stay that dark. But, uh, and there's also this, um, I'm going to use the word fetishization of suffering almost from the Thanos children, as they're called, you know, his evil hench people, uh, which was, you know, kind of creepy. And again, reminded me of a lot of those kind of dark, um, sort of movies. Um, but fortunately, it doesn't stay that way the whole time. It's an interesting comparison because Sam Raimi also has a huge sense of humor. And we'll yes. marry that, you know, violence and gore with ridiculous silliness. Yeah. And uh, Sam Raimi, just to close this circle, directed the first Spider-Man movie and has done some other, I think, Marvel-related things. Let's see. So, um, okay, let's jump in here. TJ and Gracia make the case regarding uh, uh, Thanos as an Enneagram type. Okay. I'm going to make the case that he's a very unhealthy type one, and I'm going to die on this hill more than any other character <laughs> we've talked about. <laughs> okay. At a high level, I think Thanos is a one and not an eight because 
Although he is seeking to acquire power and he wants the power, it is power in service of a larger mission, of a greater cause. And this is jumping ahead a little bit, but after he does the snap at the end of Infinity War, at the beginning of Endgame, he uses the stones to destroy the stones. He willingly gives up the power because the mission is accomplished. He's literally a god. He could keep that power, but he doesn't want it because the mission is complete. There's a scene uh, when he has kidnapped Gamora. They're in this throne room, and they're arguing about what he's going to do. She's saying to him, basically, you want to murder trillions of people. He says, with all six stones, I could simply snap my fingers and they would all cease to exist. I call that mercy. The strongest sacrifices require the greatest wills. He says, life needs correction. She says, you don't know that. And he sort of has this exasperated look on his face. He says, I'm the only one that knows that. And she says, congratulations, you're a prophet. I see him much more as he's on a mission for a righteous cause. And when the cause is complete, he gives up the power. Uh, There's a quote from Riso and Hudson's personality types. And I actually used this quote in my typecast, my first typecast video for type one, where I use Thanos. And the quote is, completely unmerciful and unforgiving, unhealthy ones set in motion injustices and atrocities while trying to portray them as the work of an impersonal agent. Neurotic ones act as if justice itself were responsible for their sadistic punishment of others. So he wants to murder half of the universe, but he views this as a mercy, and he's actually trying to help the universe. Uh, There's more I could say, but I'll leave it at that, and let's hear what you have to say about it. All right. TJ Dahl. You know, I I went in looking for one stuff and eight stuff, and I found a fair bit for both. So the one stuff I've got is that he does seem to be driven more by the necessity of fulfilling a moral precept than by his own will. Uh, He's not afraid to moralize and talk about why his approach is the right one. He's seemingly very rational and dispassionate. Oh, and by the way, we haven't talked about instinctual biases. I think he's the definition of a transmitter in that he literally wants to make a dent in the universe. So that helps explore this question as well. Like, Because how does a transmitting eight look as opposed to how does a transmitting one look? He does have this veneer of being rational and dispassionate, uh, as well as the burden of being right. And then some of the eight stuff was that it's all about what's right, but it is also about him. You know, a line that he says in the next movie more than once is, I am inevitable. Doesn't quite sound so one-ish. You know, one of the things he says at the beginning of this movie is, you know, destiny arrives all the same and now it's here. Or should I say, I am. You know, he's very focused on himself, even though there's often this sense of like, this isn't about me, this is about what's right. Uh, He's got a tenderness towards Gamora, especially when we see the flashback to when she was a child, which is something frequently seen with eights. It's not like it's unquestionable that one would have that. But eights often have this sense of like, look at this young vulnerable being that in some way represents the tenderness that I have inside, and I will make it my thing to protect you and to challenge you and to turn you tough. So later, you know, he praises Gamora for the fact that how tough he was on her growing up turned her into the fiercest warrior in the universe. And he loves her for that. He's very proud of her for that. He also respects strength even in Quill opposing him. So in that scene that we referenced earlier where there's that confrontation, you know, he goads Quill on to pull the trigger and says, you know, he yells at him, do it. And then when he finally does, bubbles come out of the gun because Thanos has the reality stone and he can make anything happen that he wants. And then says, 
I like him. Which seems very eight as well. It's like, look at that show of strength. It's completely ineffectual. It's almost like I'm looking at a puppy and the puppy is being fierce and yapping, but good on you. You got some spunk, kid. You'll go far. Not against me. You don't have a chance against me. And then, boosh, I'm out of here. So yeah. yeah, I could see a fair bit of eight and a fair bit of one at the same time. I don't think it's a perfect picture of either one. Yeah. So I agree with that. Uh, TJ and Gracia, you made a better argument for one than I uh, would have uh, expected uh, going into this. And I also want to point out that we are talking about fictional characters and, um, you know, what was he, a titan or a demigod or, you know, I, I don't know what his official category was of uh, of non-human. But, uh, you know, so we have to be careful. Um for me, uh, the themes that came through with this. So I, so I like what you were saying, TJ and Gracia, about this moral cause, right? There was this sort of, you know, the world will be a better place if we could just get rid of, you know, half, half of, of yeah, you know, uh, you know, so, uh, um, so yeah, that, that seems like sort of a black and white sort of thinking, you know, uh, one-ish uh, sort of uh, dysfunction in the, in this case, okay? Uh, I was also curious how he was defining by which living creatures he was going to kill, right? So I'm going to get rid of, uh, you know, a half of all was, it, you know, it clearly wasn't humans because there were, you know, creatures other than that. But was it going to be, you know, a half of all the beetles on the planet or something, you know, and bumblebees and so forth? I would have loved to have known where he would have drawn the line, but that's a whole nother story. I did see a lot of eight-ish things in here, for sure. This was all about the acquisition of power, right? I get those stones and I can exert my will on the world. Um, there was a TJ Daw, I like what you were pointing out about the grudging respect for people who stand their ground. And that's a very eight-ish sort of characteristic, right? I'm about to smash you. But I want you to know that you got some, you know, you got some stones on you and I respect that, you know, so eights like to see people who, you know, sort of stand up for themselves and fight back and so forth. A uh, lot of uh, eightish stuff. Let me make the argument for the main theme of this movie being related to issues at point eight. Okay, rather than focus on the character here. The reason I say this was because this movie was about life and it was about vitality, this factor of being alive, right? So I think of the core quality at point eight being vitality. And just to give a quick summary, you know, from the way I think about it is that, you know, we each have these nine core qualities in us and the the psyche of the eight is built around this stunting of vitality of what it means to be alive, of what it feels like to be alive. And I thought that was kind of what this whole movie was about, right? What is it what does it mean to be alive? Also there was a lot about the theme of inherent value. Uh, which is something I associate with point three, right? What is the what is the inherent value of life rather than the so-called earned value of life? Okay, um, you know, are people inherently valuable, or do they need to serve some greater purpose? You know, if they need to serve some greater purpose, then by all means, well, we'll get rid of half of them. What's the big deal? You know, and uh, you know, life will go on because it's you know. But if we think of them as inherently valuable which is something we see popping up. Uh, you know, it's a big Captain America theme, right? No, we're not going to make a sacrifice for, you know, we're not going to sacrifice one person for more. We're going to find a way to save everybody, sort of quality. Um, but this was all about uh, 
for me, this sort of weariness, you know, and, and this was something that came through in Thanos, this world weariness, okay, that's often at the heart of what's happening with eights, right? Because in eights, vitality gets stunted and they feel this deadness inside and they're trying to recapture it in some way. And this is why we see all this exertion, this excessiveness, this, you know, extremeness in eights. It's this idea, way of trying to capture life again. For me, that was just a big theme in the movie, okay, of what does it mean to be alive? What does it mean to feel alive? Yeah, agreed. The value of life is explored in really interesting ways. The note that I have, and I didn't connect these things with a single Enneagram type in that this is the theme of this type, therefore this movie has this, uh, love, empathy, and sacrifice. And all of that is related to life because there's a number of examples of a sacrifice having to be made or the threat of that influencing the story altogether when the stakes could not be higher. So there's a couple of instances when somebody gives in information they really didn't want to give in because somebody they love is made to suffer. So this happens in the first scene with Loki when Thor is being tortured, and then later happens with Gamora when her stepsister Nebula is being tortured. And then there's a number of instances where people have to sacrifice for the greater good. And then how does this affect the people in their lives? So this is Gamora asking Star-Lord to kill her if the situation comes up. This is Vision asking Wanda to destroy the stone and by extension him. And this is Thanos having to sacrifice Gamora. So what are we willing to give up? And what is the cost of doing the right thing? And how does that affect us personally? Because even Thanos, we see, tears up at the prospect and then at the reality of having to murder his own daughter, his adopted daughter, but still, he clearly does love her and it tears him apart to have to do this, even though he keeps up a brave front. And you would think that with the stakes being half the life in the universe or not, it would be a no-brainer for Vision and Wanda and everybody involved to just be like, oh, let's kill him. Let's kill him right now like while we still can. Like trillions are at stake. What the hell is one life? And yet that's not an easy decision to make, even when Vision is perfectly ready to do it. Wanda still has this pull to her beloved that she can't just get rid of and then is utterly broken when he dies. It also struck me, and, 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 I, and I like what you're saying here, TJ, because it is an important theme, but I was also struck by how these attempts at self-sacrifice never really worked out or achieved the agenda that they had hoped to, right? Because eventually she does, you know, eventually Star-Lord does decide, okay, I'm going to shoot Gamora and all that happens are bubbles pop out of the gun, right? And, uh, you know, and, and eventually she does say, okay, I'm going to sacrifice uh, Vision. But again, it's the attempt to do so has no result and doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't work. So that struck me as there was even that sort of bleakness and cynicism almost in this movie because, okay, once we do try, nothing works, right? And I think that was kind of the, uh, you know, the end line from um, Doctor Strange that, you know, something about it being inevitable or this was the only way it could have been. Um, other Enneagram-related thoughts on the movie? Any other characters? I think we can save Thor, right? Uh, we, we've, we're going to have a lot to say about Thor. I could talk all day about Thor, especially in this movie. There were a lot of great things, but I think we'll table that for the next time because he's going to be a central character. Yeah, I'd say we talked in a previous episode about Wanda potentially being a type four. 
And I thought there was a really interesting and beautiful moment. I mean, tragically beautiful. So at the end, when Thanos does the snap and all these characters begin to disintegrate, each one of them sort of as they disintegrate, they're fighting it. There's sort of a confusion. What's happening to me? I don't want to die. But Wanda, when she disintegrates, she's holding Vision's dead body and she lifts her head up to the heavens and there's almost an embrace of it. Like, like the grief is so overwhelming, she's accepting it like almost like take me i've had enough of this and it just felt like a very fourish kind of a moment yeah when my heart is so broken death is welcomed yeah maybe a little stereotypical but it did feel right no i think it it worked i think it was in character for sure another thing that i saw in there was there was a pretty big one-ish theme in terms of the flaw of believing one's point of view is infallible we talked about this somewhat in Captain America Civil War. That's one of the major themes in that is that Captain America believes his moral center is unerring, that he could possibly be led astray. And the, um, the script writers agree with him because ultimately he is right. Bucky didn't commit the murder at the, uh, he didn't bomb the UN. That was just made to look like it was. Cap is right. Thanos believes that his way is the only way. And there's some pretty obvious flaws in his approach. There's more than just what I'm about to say, but there's the fact that by eliminating half of life, it seems to be animal life. So that's not so great for carnivores. And there's also the assumption that every single inhabited planet on, in the universe is overpopulated at an equal rate. And if you have all the power of the Infinity Stones, why not use it to provide people with renewable clean energy and all of that kind of thing? And he's brilliant as well as physically capable, and these things don't seem to have occurred to him. So I think that's there's a strong theme in like your moral center isn't necessarily right no matter how strongly you believe in your cause. It is very good to look for gaps in your own thinking. I want to um, again not to seem like I'm arguing against the uh, uh, the one hypothesis here. Um, big big issue for eights. Okay, this idea of believing that they're right. Okay, we even, um, you know, I've identified that as one of the key derailers that I run into in clients that I work with who are type eights, this belief that I know the right way to do it and everybody, you know, I'm going to bend everybody to my will because I know. And this comes from very often the eights feeling a sense of responsibility to be a decision maker, to be a one, somebody who drives, you know, action and the world forward. And in order to do that, you have to be decisive and you have to be confident. And it's something, you know, the phenomenon that you were just describing there, TJ, is something we see in someone like Patton, for example, of this, you know, no, all these idiots back at headquarters don't know anything. I know the right way to do things. But it's usually not as thought out as it might be coming from some of the other types. And it's usually not coming from a moral perspective like it often is in ones, right? They they usually don't justify it in moral terms. They justify it in practical terms for what it's worth. And again, it goes to show you that you see a lot of similar behaviors in people of different Enneagram types, right? And we have to kind of peel back the layers before we see what's uh, really happening underneath. So, As a one, I feel a very kindred spirit with eights. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of connection there. Yeah. I would agree. And I would say there's an equivalent to that in all the nine types. Like from my own experience as a four, my sense of rightness, like this is an objective truth 
not that I believe this in this moment, but I have definitely believed this at many times in my life, is that the masses of people are superficial and shallow. And that anybody who listens to this kind of music is not someone who has any value as a human being whatsoever. And that, you know, that kind of thing, that story that is very black and white, judgmental and gives me the gold medal. I get to win that argument, which I have with myself all the time. And in some ways, you can see this as an invitation. And this is part of the growth work of looking at yourself through the lens of the Enneagram is saying, what stories do I know are right? And is there any possibility I might get another perspective on that? Yeah, good stuff. A couple other things I think, you know, again, I, I'm not as versed in the Marvel universe as you guys are. So um, uh, I did find it interesting that the ultimate bad guy is named Thanos, uh, which in Greek mythology was the personification of death. Okay. Um, so, you know, we know the the concept of Thanatos, which was, you know, Freud said was a death wish at uh, one point. There were a lot of religious themes in this. It was interesting to me that everybody turned to ashes when they died at the end, right? So it's the ashes to ashes thing, um, you know, from the Christian perspective. Is that the Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes? I'm trying to remember where that uh, that line comes from. Well, it wouldn't be Song of Solomon, it'd be Ecclesiastes. Right, Ecclesiastes, yeah. Right, Song right. of Solomon's the sex one. <laughs> that would be asses to asses. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, could. I knew it was Solomon. I just couldn't remember which one. So, um, yeah, so some interesting themes there. Uh, so, I, I, again, I want to reiterate, I like this movie. It takes some patience. It takes a understanding of um, the movies that come before and the themes that are going in. So if people have not watched this, I wouldn't put it first on the list of Marvel movies to watch, but certainly one worth watching. All right, guys. So um, next time up, we have, uh, in addition to the Avengers Endgame, is uh, Ragnarok, Thor Ragnarok. Is that the one we're watching? Okay, good. So I uh, hope everybody has enjoyed this episode of the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. We look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks for listening to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. Be sure to join us for the next exciting episode. In the meantime, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe, and join us on social media.